The scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 20. That starts in verse 24. We're going to start in verse 19, though. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told them, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You be seated. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we uh, approach it this morning, you would allow us to hear it without the distractions of this past week and all that's weighing on us, without thinking about our plans for today and for the week ahead. Father, help us to be wholly quiet and still and hear your Spirit speak to us through your Word. Thank you, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, Growing up, I had my fair share of of nicknames. Some of them I just kind of lived with. You know, when my parents called me Danny and my mom, grandma called me Danny, I was okay. Didn't love it when my friends called me Danny. Didn't really appreciate it so much. Um, had some nicknames I really liked. You know, in college I was known as Chief Wah or the Chieftain. We can go back to that. That would be fine. Kind of like that one. Uh, but there was one nickname that I loathed. I absolutely hated it. Uh, I remember, and I think I've shared this before, it was between my 6th grade and 7th grade years of school, transitioning into to junior high, my family moved from Florida to New York, and I moved from a very small fundamentalist Christian school to a very large public school in New York. And that transition was going to be really difficult, but because we moved in the summer, I really didn't have an opportunity to, to make many friends before school started. So my th- parents thought they would kind of help jumpstart that process, and they signed me up, of course, for baseball. Uh, so I joined a team in the league and immediately became known as Fivel. Don't remember Fivel? Uh, h- here's a picture of, of Fivel, okay? Uh, the cartoon mouse from the, the movie An American Tale. Um, he was small, funny looking, 
and he didn't belong. He was a Russian mouse who immigrated to America, where there were no cats, apparently. Um, I hated, you can take that down, it's like bad flashbacks. Um, uh, I hated that nickname because it fit me so well. Uh, I was a runt. I was like four foot nine, like 75 pounds. I mean, I was a tiny little kid, goofy looking, and that was new. I didn't belong. Uh, you know, sometimes nicknames can be fair. Sometimes they can be good. Sometimes they fit. Sometimes they don't. I'm going to leave it up to you this morning to decide whether or not the nickname Doubting Thomas fits him. And that's who we're talking about. And so as we go this morning, you know, Think about Thomas and his situation. Did the nickname, was it appropriate? Did it, did it fit him? Certainly in the beginning of the story, he's the doubter, right? Uh, he's the one that doesn't believe the story that Jesus has been raised from the dead. But that's not where the story ends. Thomas begins in doubt. But he moves to belief. And then on to this beautiful expression of worship. And this morning, as we go through each one of those stages in Thomas, I think there's great lessons, truths for us to learn. But the main truth is that doubt isn't overcome until it becomes worship. Or to say it another way, faith hasn't completed its goal until it leads to worship. So Thomas is a fairly familiar figure, right? Doubting Thomas. Uh, I'll show you my cards right now. I don't think the nickname is all that fair. Uh, In Scripture, we're told that when Jesus appeared to those first disciples, Thomas wasn't there. Don't know where he was, don't know why he wasn't with them, uh, but he wasn't there. They got to see, they got to hear Jesus speak to them again, and they believed. But Thomas wasn't there. He wanted the same evidence of the resurrection that that they had. He wanted to see. He wanted to hear. He wanted to touch. So on one hand, I I don't know that Doubting Thomas is a fair nickname. I'm sure he wouldn't like it. I mean, we don't call Peter denying Peter, do we? You know, so I, I doubt he'd appreciate it that much, but... On the other hand, Scripture does seem to suggest that Thomas should have believed. Uh, The witness accounts should have been off. He should have believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. You know, there's a difference between reasonable doubt and stubborn doubt or obstinate disbelief. When we hear on... TV politicians make grandiose claims about what they're going to do if they're elected. We all have a tinge or more of of doubt, right? Uh, That's a reasonable doubt. What politician has ever delivered fully on what they've promised? We know that. We hear these promises and these claims and we hear them through the lens of doubt. That's okay. Reasonable doubt. But have you ever met someone who truly doubts we've landed someone on the moon? That's a different category of doubt. That's not reasonable doubt. Uh, That's persistent, stubborn, obstinate disbelief. And it seems like Scripture puts Thomas's doubt in that category. 
He, he should have believed. He had enough evidence in front of him for this belief in Jesus' resurrection to be a, a justified belief. Think about what evidence Thomas had for the resurrection. First of all, he had Jesus' words. Thomas knew Jesus intimately. He had lived, walked, ministered with Jesus side by side for, for going on three years now. He had heard Jesus' teaching. He had seen him do miraculous things. He was there when Jesus said, I'm going to have to die, but don't worry, I'll rise again. He was there when Jesus said, just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, I'm going to be in the belly of the earth for three days, but I'm not going to stay there. I'm going to come out victorious. And he was there when Jesus said, destroy this temple and three days later it's going to be built again. And he was there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Thomas knew Jesus. He knew Jesus had never misled him, lied to him. He should have trusted Jesus' word. He should have received this testimony as fulfillment of Jesus' promise. But he was stubborn in his disbelief. He also had the empty tomb. When Mary came and told the disciples that Jesus had been raised from the dead, what did they do? They raced to the tomb to see that the tomb was empty. And then they believed. Thomas could have. When he heard the message, he could have gone to the tomb and seen for himself, but he didn't. And he had the testimony of Mary. He had the testimony of those disciples who were in that room when Jesus appeared. He should have believed them. He knew them. He had been with them again for three years. They were his friends. He trusted them. Why not now? Maybe you're saying, well, eyewitnesses are just notoriously unreliable. Well, they can be, but not always. Think about how many things you accept as true based on eyewitness testimony. You you ask your wife, is it cold outside? And she says, yes. And you walk out and you grab a coat before you test it for yourself. You believe her testimony. Think about all the things in history that you believe based on eyewitness testimony. Richard Bauckham, a New Testament theologian, has written a great book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And he reminds us that all history relies on testimony. Without testimony, we would know nothing of history. He says testimony is uniquely valuable, a uniquely valuable means for accessing historical reality. And Thomas had some great eyewitness testimony. He should have believed. But there he is, in his stubborn disbelief. Why? Uh, What got him there? When you read through the Gospel of John, that's not the consistent picture you see of Thomas. Uh, In chapter 11 of John's Gospel, Jesus has just received word that Lazarus is sick, and and later Jesus says, Lazarus is dead, and and I'm going to go to where Lazarus is, to Jerusalem. And Thomas says, well, let's go with them so we can die too. Pessimistic, maybe, but not doubting. Loyal, a, a willing martyr 
for Jesus and his cause. You fast forward to John chapter 14, and Thomas is on the scene again. Jesus has been teaching, and he says, I'm going to my father's house to prepare a room for you, and where I go, I'm going to bring you to. And Thomas says, but Lord, we don't know where you're going. How are we going to know the way? The picture you see there of Thomas is of someone who, who loves his Lord. Maybe he's a little confused, maybe a little obtuse, but he loves his Lord, and he's, he's concerned that he won't be able to find him. He's going away and he won't know where to go to, to be with him. Not doubting. So why now? Why this stubborn, obstinate doubt now? You've got to be careful not to psychoanalyze Thomas too much. You don't have a lot of stuff to go on here. But I think it's probably because of his disappointment and grief. Uh, Thomas has been with Jesus for three years. He believed that he was the Christ, the Messiah. And he had his understanding of what Christ, the Messiah, would do. Getting crucified was not high on the list. Uh, This wasn't playing out like Thomas thought. He's disappointed that this turn in the road, and he's grief-struck. The Lord, his master that he loved, is dead. And this disappointment and this, this grief leads to his doubt. Doubt takes root in that soil. And I found that to be true in my own life. When I look back at the periods of darkest doubt, deepest doubt, it usually coincides with deep disappointment or grief. Uh, We have this understanding, I do at least, of of what the Christian life should be. And sometimes it doesn't live up to what I think it should be. And it's in those times that I'm tempted to doubt. Maybe you were promised the moon, you know, when you became a Christian. Happiness, joy, nothing's ever going to go wrong, peace and prosperity. And then life doesn't, well, happen that way. And it can lead to doubt. I know I was promised a a personal relationship with Jesus, and that sounds fantastic, but no one prepared me for the times when that personal relationship seems distant, Uh, when Jesus seems quiet, when I go through those those dark, dark nights of the soul. And it's in those periods of disappointment and grief that I can, like Thomas, find myself doubting. But then Jesus shows up, and he says, Thomas, stop it. (laughs) Don't be an unbeliever. Believe. Or, Or, stop with the unbelief, and begin believing. It's as if he's saying, you know, Thomas, what you feel right now, whether you're disappointed or, or grief struck, has no bearing whatsoever on whether or not I walked out of the tomb. I need to hear that. It has no bearing how I feel. If I'm disappointed with how my life, my Christian life is unfolding, it, it, all of that has no bearing whatsoever on the reality, the truth that Jesus walked out of the tomb. So Jesus shows up and says, Thomas, stop disbelieving and believe. 
And as Thomas is confronted with Jesus, he moves from doubt to belief. He becomes a believer in Jesus, the risen one, when he's confronted, when he's presented with the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection. I know stating it like that, historical fact of Jesus' resurrection, it ruffles some contemporary feathers. Because, well, we live in an age of like and dislike. Thank you, Facebook. You know, everything's an opinion that we can thumbs up or thumbs down. And we have begun to even treat facts that way. This isn't a fact we like or dislike. It's a fact, a fact we believe or disbelieve. It didn't matter at all, really, if Thomas liked this or not. Jesus was standing there. Fast forward a few years. Paul did not like the message of Jesus crucified and risen. He was offended by it. But it didn't matter when he was on the road to Damascus and there Jesus is confronting him. The historical risen Jesus. Doesn't matter if you're offended by it. There he is. Uh, It really doesn't matter when it comes down to it. If we're offended by Christianity. If we're offended by or don't like the ethical teachings or the teachings on sex or on money or sexuality. When you boil it down, it doesn't matter what your opinion is of it. When it comes to the crux of the matter, did Jesus rise from the dead? Pastor and author Tim Keller says the resurrection makes Christianity the most irritating religion on the face of the earth. You can't just disregard it and say, ah, I don't really like that. Or, Here it is. Jesus rose from the dead. Believe it or not. I love the way that the story is, is told. Because it really points me to the fact that this wasn't something the early church kind of concocted. This isn't a fabrication of the early church. Because if they fabricated a resurrection, you certainly wouldn't tell it this way. I mean, you wouldn't have, frankly, women being the first eyewitnesses. Because in that day, in that age, women had no voice. Their testimony wasn't even admissible in court, so why would you have them being the first eyewitnesses if you were making the story up? And you wouldn't have three of your inner inner circle being goats in the story. It'd be heroes. You wouldn't have Judas the betrayer, Peter the denier, and Thomas the doubter. This is presented as, you know what? We don't necessarily like the way this story makes us look, but this is what happened. Here it is. We're just telling you. Believe it. It's true. It's not presented as a symbol for some higher spiritual truth or some mystical mumbo-jumbo about how Jesus is present wherever his teachings are passed on. No, Jesus, the brute fact is he walked out of the tomb. There he is. What do you do with him? Thomas doubted, but when he was confronted with the historical 
physical resurrection of Jesus in the flesh, he believed. I just take tremendous comfort from the fact that Jesus was raised in the flesh. Flesh, humanity, personhood, it wasn't something that Jesus decided to take on for a short time and do his thing and then set it aside. Jesus is, forever will be, the God-man. God incarnate, God in flesh. He will forever be my great sympathetic high priest. It's not as if he has to draw on long ago memories to remember what it's like to be in flesh, to be human. He still is. He knows and he cares about my humanity and your humanity deeply. And here he is still in the flesh, resurrected. But it's a transformed flesh. It's a transformed, renewed humanity. In Jesus' resurrection here, we're reminded that the curse is now being undone. It's working backwards in Jesus. Think about your, your past week. All the things you struggled with and were frustrated by. For me, it was hives. I don't know why. Chest, back, neck, face, hives. It's miserable. I don't know if I ate something that I was allergic to. I don't know if the stress of being a Cleveland Indians baseball fan finally got to me. I don't know what it was. It's only happened one other time in my life, but it was miserable. And it reaffirmed my belief in the curse. What was it for you? Is it sickness? Chronic pain? Is it broken relationship? Is it tension in your home between you and your kids or you and your spouse? Is it frustration at work? All evidence of the sin and the curse. And Jesus stands there, resurrected, redeemed humanity, and reminds us it's all coming in C.S. Lewis's words, untrue. And it's not just us as individuals. Think about the headlines. Global scarcity of something, greed, violence, war, oppression, sin and curse. And in Jesus, in his resurrection, standing there in front of Thomas, we see it's all coming undone. It's being redeemed. Jesus stands there and he says, Thomas, here's my hands. Here's my side. What now? And in that moment, Thomas moves from doubt to belief, but his journey isn't over. He becomes a worshiper. And he says, my Lord and my God. When Thomas is confronted with Jesus, the risen Lord, he worships. That's the proper response. This is the highest praise you read in John's gospel. My Lord and my God. And Jesus accepts it. He doesn't say, no, 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 don't worship me, worship God alone. That's what the angels in the book of Revelation say. No, he accepts it because he's worthy of it. My Lord and my God, yes, Thomas, 
You're right. You're right in worshiping me. That's the proper response to belief in me, the resurrected one. Worship. Thomas's statement was utterly scandalous. My Lord and my God, a, a devout Jew saying that to a, a man? That, that's scandalous. Devout Jews would not even utter the name of God. When you read in your Old Testament and you see capital L-O-R-D, Lord, that, that's a replacement for the divine name Yahweh. So reverent were they of that name that they wouldn't even utter it. But it would be utter blasphemy to call a man God. Why did Thomas do it? Because there he is. Crucified, yet risen. And he worships. Here in Thomas's response, which is completely proper, we see that, that mere belief isn't sufficient. Belief needs to move to doxology, to worship. You know, some beliefs aren't actionable at all. Uh, I'm not a physicist. You didn't know that, did you? I'm not. If I believe or disbelieve in the theory of relativity, I can't think what that means for me one way or the other. I have no idea what to do with that. Does it change how I teach my son to throw a curveball, how I cook dinner, how I drive? I don't think so, maybe. It's not actionable for me. I don't know what to do with it. I don't need to respond to it. But this winter when we heard all these forecasts about big winter storms coming, that was actionable belief. If I believed the storm was coming, I needed to go to the store and get some milk and bread, fill the truck up with gas in case we needed to go somewhere. I needed to be ready. I needed to do something with that belief. You need to do something with your belief in Jesus. Jesus, the risen one. What do you do with that? Thomas, what do you do now? Oh, Jesus, I worship my Lord, my God. This story comes right before John gives you the purpose for his book. He says, Jesus did all these things and a lot of miracles that I didn't even include, but I included these so that you'll believe and that in believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you will have life. He's not just talking about physical life. Or eternal life in the sense of long life. He's talking about deep, real, true life as God meant it to be. Spiritual life. Life connected with your maker. Life in Christ. Life lived Godward. Life lived doxologically. Life lived in praise. That's life. Jesus offers that. Believe. Believe this and let it impact everything about you. Your whole life. The theologian Abraham Kuyper said that there is not a square inch of your existence in which Jesus Christ, the Lord, the risen Lord, doesn't say, mine. Belief in Him as the risen Lord impacts 
how I teach my son to throw a curveball, how I drive home, how I cook dinner, how you interact with your roommate, how you go about your studies. It impacts it all. It all becomes worship. It all becomes his. You see Thomas, I think, getting that. Oh, my Lord and my God. I love the story. The the story has something for for everyone. If you're a doubter, a skeptic, well, here you're confronted with authentic, reliable testimony regarding Jesus, the risen one. Move from doubt to belief. It's very reasonable to do it. If you're a believer, great. Allow that belief to make you a worshiper, not just here on Sunday mornings, but with your entire life. You're a worshiper. Outstanding. Take your cue from Thomas and how he worshiped. And it wasn't just with these words. His belief, his worship, his desire to see Christ worshiped compelled him eastward. Church tradition says that Thomas went all the way to India preaching the gospel. I don't think he did it out of duty or obligation. I think he was compelled by the joy of the risen Christ. Compelled. He just wanted to tell people the good news. Jesus Christ was crucified, but he lives. He died, but he rose. He loves me, and I love him. Let your belief, let your worship compel you to do as Thomas did. Not necessarily go to India, but tell people. Commend Jesus to others. Let that be not just a part of your duty and obligation, but part of your worship. Praise Him to others. That's part of this life that we're invited to. This new life in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. We thank you for its testimony regarding Jesus, the risen one. And Father, we thank you for your spirit. Your spirit that validates that truth to us. Your spirit that speaks and confirms it to us. Your spirit that draws us deeper into trust and dependence, belief, and worship. Father, we pray that your spirit would be stirring us now, pulling down stubborn doubts, pulling down roadblocks to belief, and stirring in us affections for your son, Jesus. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.